Support for AHLA comes from Axon, which brings unmatched depth and the skills needed to address healthcare collaboration and competition. They are one of the best-known antitrust firms in the world, with more than 60 full-time competition lawyers. They represent companies across the healthcare universe and help clients avoid antitrust landmines, complete mission-critical deals, and protect their interests in litigation and investigations. For more information, visit axon.com. Well, thanks everyone and welcome to the AHLA Antitrust Year in Review podcast. My name is Jenny Mayer. I'm a partner in Washington, D.C. at Axon Beltrop and Parkrider. And I am very pleased on behalf of Axon to be sponsoring this podcast and uh, to have with me today uh, two of our esteemed uh, members of the bar, uh, Alexis Gilman and John Carroll, who uh, frequent listeners and readers of AHLA will recall as being uh, our annual Antitrust Year in Review uh, hosts. And we are bringing you the top 10 developments from 2021 in the world of antitrust and healthcare and the top 10 things to watch uh, in 2022. As I say this, it's always hard to uh, look at these numbers and recognize that we are in 2022 almost. Uh, so we will uh, kick things off by first having our esteemed uh, colleagues uh, introduce themselves. Alexis, go ahead. Thanks, Jenny, and uh, great to have you on the podcast this year. Um, I'm Alexis Gilman. I'm a partner in the Antitrust and Competition Group at Kroll & Mooring in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm John Carroll. I'm a partner uh, at Shepard Mullen in the DC office in the antitrust group. And as uh, all of us here uh, participate in uh, the antitrust world in healthcare, we uh, are going to be expressing some uh, views and thoughts uh, on this podcast. But wanted to make sure that uh, we appropriately gave the disclaimer that uh, the views that we express here are are our own and uh, are not those of any of our clients or our firm's clients. So with this moderator job, I get to do my very best impression of a game show host. And what we will be doing here in the next uh, few minutes is going through what we've uh, come up with as the top developments of 2021 in healthcare antitrust. So we will start off with number 10, the FTC's Section 6B study of healthcare provider consolidation. And I will turn that over to John. Thanks, Jenny. Yeah, happy to be weighing in at number 10. And I will note just very briefly that every year it's a challenge to pick 10 things or to limit it, uh, our discussion to 10 things that have occurred and to predict 10 things that we think will be occurring and that we're excited about in the healthcare antitrust arena. And this year was certainly no different. There were, there's a lot to talk about. There's been a lot of action in this space, as I'm sure our listeners are well aware. And so number 10, though it's, we, we listed it last, it's, it's hardly least. And that is uh, something that occurred earlier this year in, in January, where the FTC announced that they had issued orders to uh, certain health insurance companies to provide information uh, to the commission uh, to allow it to study the effects of physician group and healthcare facility consolidation that has allegedly occurred uh, from 2015 uh, through the end of 2020. This um, uh, issuance of these orders is part of a broader initiative from the FTC's Bureau of Economics uh, to uh, help their economists at the agencies uh, carry out more retrospective studies to, to test their analytical tools and, quote, strengthen their enforcement efforts. And so as part of this, they issued, uh, they being the FTC, issued these subpoenas to certain uh, insurers seeking certain types of data, such as commercial claims data for inpatient, outpatient, and physician services, again, for the years 2015 to 2020. And the purpose of all of this, according to the FTC, um, is to understand and assess the impact of physician consolidation, including physician practice mergers um, and hospital acquisitions of physician practices. The FTC issued um, some additional clarification, uh, specifically Mike Vita, the Deputy Director of Research and Management over at the Bureau of Economics, uh, issued some additional guidance and, and with respect to the issuance of, of these orders uh, a few months later in April. And I think the reason why, um, you know, oh, I'm sorry, backing up, uh, issued this guidance in April uh, to help folks understand that the FTC considers 
the healthcare industry of paramount importance when it comes to antitrust enforcement. And that clarification um, or guidance that was issued by Mike Vita pointed out right off the bat that healthcare spending accounts for a significant share of US GDP. And of course, the FTC is therefore focused on it, and in particular on US physician markets. And so I think the takeaway here isn't just that the FTC is studying something in the healthcare antitrust arena, but as Alexis and, and Jenny, as you well know, um, sometimes these 6B studies, these analytical studies, these industry studies that the FTC uh, pursues often predict uh, future enforcement efforts. And so we saw the hospital retrospective uh, study in the early 2000s that then arguably precipitated a, a wave of unprecedented hospital merger enforcement. And it may be a stretch to say that's coming with respect to physician groups in particular, but at the same time, it's something um, given the past uh, and, and, and what uh, these studies have uh, uh, influenced or resulted in with respect to enforcement action, it's something that we're certainly keeping our eye on and that we consider to be a, a pretty significant development in healthcare antitrust in 2021. Thanks, John. Yes, definitely something to keep our eye on. And in particular, it's very consistent with a lot of the uh, rhetoric coming out of the agency around uh, non-HSR reportable transactions, uh, of which you know, physician transactions uh, often are given uh, the size of those deals. So it's uh, very much something that is uh, on the minds of, of the agency and probably will be uh, going forward. So taking a step out of the FTC world uh, for a few moments and going over to uh, state side of things. I'm going to turn to Alexis with uh, development number nine, our Sutter Settlement in California. Yeah, so I'm calling this one uh, Sutter Settlement is Settled uh, because I thought we should introduce a little alliteration to this year's podcast to really spice things up. Um, so this number nine is that in August, a Superior Court judge in California gave final approval to a $575 million settlement uh, between Sutter, the California Attorney General, and private plaintiffs to resolve longstanding antitrust allegations about Sutter's contracts with health plans. Uh, the state and private plaintiffs had alleged that Sutter's contracts with health plans contained so-called all-or-nothing terms that basically required health plans to include all Sutter providers in their networks or none, which allegedly eliminated insurers' ability to choose which providers they could include in their networks. Uh, the plaintiffs also alleged that the contracts prevented insurers from steering patients to lower cost providers and required Sutter to be included in the best tier of any tiered insurers networks. And that Sutter prevented insurers from disclosing the uh, price of their services to the insured members until after services were provided and billed out. In addition to the uh, $575 million payment, the settlement also requires Sutter to end this all or nothing contracting practice and anti-steering contract terms and allow price transparency uh, by providers to their, or by insurers to their members. So that's our number nine for the year. Thanks, Alexis. And we are uh, moving up the list and headed back uh, to the FTC and like to have John give us uh, the rundown of the FTC's repeal of the vertical merger guidelines. Yes, and for now, thanks, Jenny. It is just the FTC, uh, which took unilateral uh, action without the Department of Justice Antitrust Division back on September 15th of this year. Um, and withdrawing the vertical merger guidelines, which actually had not been in place all that long, uh, having been released in the year 2020. Um, this is an action that we could probably talk about the rest of the podcast, but I'll spare us that discussion uh, and just provide a short summary, which is it, the reason why we are covering it in the context of um, the healthcare antitrust arena is because vertical mergers or something that are relatively common in the industry. So by vertical mergers, we mean a transaction involving a combination of you know, two businesses or, or, or entities at different levels of the supply chain. And so a common example in healthcare antitrust would be a, a transaction or merger or acquisition of a, a, involving a payer and a provider. So um, you know, in that instance, the provider is essentially the seller or the provider of the service and the insurance company, the payer, um, is the purchaser of that service. And so transactions that are vertical, in other words, those that don't 
involve head-to-head or so-called horizontal competitors um, have been subject to, I think it's fair to say, an ambiguous uh, legal standard um, in modern antitrust. And so in order to help uh, practitioners uh, and those in the industry better understand the analytical framework for assessing these types of transactions, the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice issued some guidance, not not particularly clear guidance, to be honest, but um, guidance um, as to how they view those transactions with respect to, in particular, the type of transactions that don't present competitive harm. The FTC, uh, in in September 15th of of this year, just not that long ago, under uh, new chairperson Khan's leadership, uh, withdrew those so that they can better understand um, uh, what the FTC and, 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 and they've committed to working with DOJ on this, but to understand um, clear uh, and provide explore, clear, sorry, explore and provide clear and administratable guidance on the characterization, characterizations of transactions that are likely unlawful to, in, in order to quote, provide market participants with clear notice, reduce burden on antitrust enforcers, and aid judges by allowing them to focus on observable facts that tend to predict anti-competitive effects rather than complex and speculative claims. So that's a mouthful of a quote from the FTC, but essentially what I think we can take away from this is that um, the types of transactions that are vertical transactions that are being analyzed by the FTC in light of having no guidelines um, are subject to debate and require very careful analysis from practitioners in assessing likely competitive harms. I would also point out that two commissioners at the time dissented uh, from this, um, there was a three to two vote. So, uh, Wilson with commissioners Wilson and Phillips dissenting, and that, as you can imagine, we will probably cover soon with respect to 2022. Uh, those of us who practice in this area are eagerly anticipating what the FTC and perhaps the DOJ will do with respect to guidance on vertical transactions in the future. Thanks, John. That's a great summary. And I think as you alluded to at the end, there's going to be several things uh, that we're going to talk about here and current developments from 2021 and, and things to watch for for 2022 as it relates to uh, the leadership of the FTC and how that might uh, impact uh, both conduct and, and merger review going forward. So please stay tuned. So transitioning uh, out of the merger world uh, to some private litigation, uh, turn it over to Alexis to talk about our number seven development, the McLaren St. Luke's versus ProMedica case. Yeah, I call this one no deal and refusal to deal claims and uh, ties in a little bit to the vertical integration point John was making um, as as it relates to an integrated provider in Prometica. And there's a long backstory here, but the, the quick and dirty version is that Prometica, which is based in Toledo, Ohio, acquired a, a nearby community hospital, St. Luke's Hospital, in 2010. And St. Luke's was added to Prometica's own health plan, which was called Paramount. Uh, the FTC soon after challenged the acquisition in case that goes back to the time I was there, and, and maybe even you were still there, John. Um, or soon soon after you left. But um, ultimately that case ended up at the Sixth Circuit that ordered that acquisition be unwound. Um, As part of that divestiture process, Prometica is gonna sell St. Luke's to one particular acquirer. St. Luke's convinced Prometica not to sell it it to that particular buyer. But in exchange, St. Luke's apparently agreed that Prometica could drop St. Luke's from the Paramount Health Insurance Network when St. Luke's was ultimately divested. Uh, Eventually St. Luke's was divested to McLaren and well, you can kind of guess what happened next. Prometica gave St. Luke's notice that it was terminating St. Luke's from Paramount's commercial and Medicare Advantage plans. Uh, St. Luke's upon receiving that notice filed for preliminary injunction to prevent Prometica from terminating it from the Paramount Network and alleged that the termination violated the antitrust laws as a restraint of trade and was an attempt by Prometica to maintain a monopoly over hospital services in the local uh, healthcare market. The district court actually ruled in favor of St. Luke's entering the PI saying that Prometica's 50% market share sufficed to show that uh, Prometica had market power and found that there was little doubt that Prometica's planned termination of St. Luke's was an any competitive refusal to deal. 
Um, case was appealed to the Sixth Circuit, which reversed. Uh, Sixth Circuit said that refusals to deal claims, quote, face a steep and obstacle-laden climb, end quote, and that refusals to deal claims are on the outer bounds of antitrust laws and other courts as other courts have said before, uh, the cir circuit also said that Permedica had a legitimate basis for terminating St. Luke's and that St. Luke's could not satisfy the PI standard to show irreparable harm since monetary damages were available. So uh, another court case reiterating the high hurdle that plaintiffs face in making refusals to deal claims. Thanks, Alexis. And as we continue to uh, march through our list. We wanna move on to development number six, the various DOJ uh, criminal uh, no poach and wage fixing actions, which have been uh, unfortunately uh, sort of more focused on the healthcare industry than other industries. And wanted to turn this over to John for his views. Thanks. So yeah, we've been talking a lot about the FTC so far in our, our top 10 of 2021 and, and certainly some litigation and now things are getting more serious. And we're talking about folks uh, going to jail uh, for concerted behavior or agreements um, in the antitrust arena. Uh, so starting uh, earlier this year, uh, this goes back before 2021, but just in the scope of 2020, uh, in the scope of this year of 2021, there have been a number of indictments um, issued by the Department of Justice for uh, agreements on uh, not to poach each other's employees and to quote and, and to uh, uh, engage in, in what's called wage fixing. So a couple of prominent ones. Um, the first one was on January 7th, and that was where the DOJ announced um, its indictment of surgical care affiliates and another entity that own um, and operates some outpatient medical care centers across the country. Um, they uh, were alleged to have violated uh, Section 1 of the Sherman Act by agreeing not to solicit each other's senior level employees. That was actually the first ever criminal no-poach case, which was uh, a few years after the DOJ and FTC released antitrust guidance for HR professionals, where um, they warned that the DOJ intends to proceed criminally against wage fixing and no-poach agreements. Um, so this actually relates back to, I think, what we were saying, Jenny and Alexis, number 10, which is when the agencies issue guidance or issue studies, sometimes um, those can really predict uh, future enforcement efforts. And this was certainly no exception. Um, another one to point out was a, a bit more recent in April of this year, where a federal grand jury in the Eastern District of Texas uh, returned an indictment that charged two Texas uh, men with conspiring to, to fix prices. Uh, by lowering rates paid to certain healthcare workers. And then they also allegedly conspired and endeavored to obstruct an FTC investigation um, into that conduct. And so this involved um, some action back in 2017, but again, precipitated an indictment in 2021 where the two defendants allegedly uh, uh, violated the law criminally um, by agreeing to pay lower rates for certain physical therapists. Um, in, in North Texas and including in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area. So this is something where, um, as you said, unfortunately, it's in the healthcare antitrust arena. There have been other actions as well. Uh, certainly when we're talking about um, agreements not to poach or to agree on, on, on wages paid to employees, um, you know, we, we, I think as practitioners always understood these to be problematic, but it's particularly noteworthy that we're talking about criminal indictments now in this space. Thanks, John. And while we don't really necessarily have this as a separate thing to watch for 2022, uh, I think John and Alexis uh, likely agree with me that this is a extremely hot area in which uh, DOJ has put a lot of resources uh, over the course of the last few years, and it seems to uh, only be gaining more and more momentum uh, as the years go on. Uh, certainly also something to keep in mind as parties uh, look at M&A activity. Uh, sometimes these things do come to light in the course of a merger investigation or other agency investigation. So always important for companies to ensure that they have their houses in order before they uh, engage with the agencies uh, on other matters potentially related. So we are rounding uh, a corner and getting into our top five developments. 
and headed back to the FTC and have Alexis give us an overview of the case against Illumina and Grail. Yeah, the FTC goes vertical, by which I mean we're coming back to uh, mergers and vertical mergers in particular. Excuse me. So in in this past spring, the FTC sued to block Illumina's acquisition of Grail. Again, this is a vertical merger, and it involves a uh, supplier of next-generation DNA sequencing technology uh, and products, that's Illumina, with a downstream customer licensor of that technology um, that was developing what's called a multi-cancer early detection test or MCED test, and that's GRAIL. So the FTC's basic allegation is that Illumina is a dominant and essential provider of this input, this DNA sequencing technology that's needed to conduct these cancer tests. um, And that after the merger, Illumina could either stop supplying its sequencing technology to Grail's competitors, or it could raise the price of that sequencing technology to Grail's competitors, in either case, making those competitors uh, much less effective uh, in their ability to compete against Grail. Uh, I'd say that the case is big news for lots of reasons. I think two of the most um, interesting ones are first that it The case does represent the first time the FTC has actually litigated a vertical merger, by my count, in the last half century or so. And secondly, um, this is what we call a a litigate the fix case. Um, In particular, Illumina had offered to, to settle this case with the FTC by extending a number of commitments to Grail's rival developers of cancer tests. Um, And in particular, they offered a 12-year supply commitment for this uh, DNA sequencing technology with guaranteed access to the products as long as customers were still purchasing those products, Uh, no price increases during the term of that commitment, and no discontinuation of any aluminum products over the term of that agreement. So, uh, you know, I think those are pretty significant commitments, but did not satisfy the FTC. Um, There was some procedural intrigue that we don't really have time to cover in any detail, but the short version is that Illumina closed the acquisition in Grail while the FTC suit and the European Commission investigation uh, were still pending. So the FTC was left to litigate this case as a consummated merger in its administrative court. Um, That administrative trial wrapped up in September, and now we're waiting for the ALJ's decision, which is still pending. So one to watch, and we'll come back to, uh, I think, in the second half of our, our podcast. Thanks, Alexis. Yes, that one is definitely something that raises a whole uh, spate of different antitrust procedural and substantive issues and is is a really interesting one. So I will actually give John and Alexis a chance to take a breath and uh, cover our topic number four, uh, development from 2021. Uh, It's actually a little bit of a holdover from 2020. uh, And you may recall this from last year. This is the DOJ's case against Geisinger and Evangelical. So as you may remember from previous podcasts or other AHLA programming, uh, the DOJ uh, brought a challenge to a partial acquisition arrangement in between Geisinger and Evangelical in Pennsylvania. Uh, The parties had entered into what they called a collaboration agreement in February 2019, and in that agreement, Geisinger agreed to acquire a 30% interest in Evangelical uh, in exchange for $100 million towards some IP licensing and other investment projects. Uh, The agreement, uh, according to the DOJ's complaint, also provided a number of different rights to Geisinger in exchange for their um, contributions and the collaboration, and it gave them certain approval rights over evangelical strategic decision making. And the DOJ uh, opened an investigation shortly after this arrangement was executed. The hospitals agreed to a hold separate to maintain the status quo and the DOJ filed their complaint uh, in August 2020 to block the deal, uh, alleging that uh, the parties had a history of close competition with one another, uh, that they cooperated with each other in an anti-competitive manner, and that the partial acquisition agreement would have violated Section 7 of the Clayton Act as well as Section 1 of the Sherman Act. 
So the current development uh, from this year is that in March, on March 3rd, the antitrust division announced a settlement with Geisinger and Evangelical resolving the DOJ's challenge to the partial acquisition. That settlement was approved by the district court in September. And in effect, it will prevent Geisinger from controlling or influencing Evangelical's ordinary course of business uh, operations and trying its best to restore competition between the parties. And just to outline sort of the scope of the settlement, uh, number one, it caps Geisinger's ownership interest in Evangelical at seven and a half percent, as opposed to the 30 percent that they had originally uh, sought to acquire. The settlement also uh, restricts uh, entanglements between the parties. Uh, they had entered into a number of different arrangements that uh, would have given uh, Geisinger some, you know, authority to approve uh, or enact certain uh, sets of behavior uh, on the evangelical side. In addition, the settlement prohibits almost all information exchange between the parties in order to ensure that uh, competitively sensitive information is not shared between the two competitors. Next, it also sets some rules of engagement for future cooperation between the parties. I think this is recognizing uh, on the part of DOJ, that there are some benefits to the parties uh, working together to benefit the community. And finally, the settlement requires the parties to engage in antitrust compliance programs and maintain firewalls. So by limiting these types of financial entanglements between the parties going forward and imposing additional restrictions on their interactions with one another, uh, the settlement believe or the DOJ believes that the settlement will sufficiently incentivize the parties to continue to compete against each other aggressively going forward. And so beyond just the DOJ's action challenging the uh, partial acquisition agreement, Geisinger and Evangelical are also continuing to defend themselves against some civil lawsuits that have been brought by healthcare professionals, alleging that the parties had agreed with one another not to poach each other's employees, uh, driving down wages and, and compensation. This is, you know, as, as John was suggesting before, no poaches are incredibly hot um, right now in the antitrust world. Uh, so this putative class action was filed in February of this year. And it was likely inspired by some disclosures that were in the DOJ's complaint, which referenced a no poach arrangement between the parties for nurses. So Geisinger and Evangelical moved to dismiss the case, which is pending in Pennsylvania federal court. Uh, but very recently, the judge denied the party's motion to dismiss the federal antitrust claims, finding that the plaintiff's allegations about the no poach agreement were sufficient to allow the case to continue towards discovery. So that part is certainly something to watch for in 2022. We are now headed on to our top three developments from 2021. And coming in at number three is a sort of multi-headed monster of the FTC's uh, litigated hospital cases and the decisions coming out of the courts in Jefferson Einstein and Hackensack Englewood in particular. So take it away, John. Yeah, thanks, Jenny. So if we're talking healthcare and I trust, we're, we're obviously going to be talking about hospital mergers at some point. Uh, and this year is no exception. So wanted to focus on two cases, as you indicated. The first is a win and the second is a loss for the FTC, at least. Um, in Hackensack, um, the FTC successfully challenged that combination, um, at least at the district court level, between Hackensack and Englewood. Uh, in August of 2021, uh, the, the district court in New Jersey uh, granted the FTC's motion to, to enjoin that proposed transaction. Um, the court uh, seemed to be persuaded by the testimony of, of three out of four major payers or insurers in New Jersey. Uh, quote, many insurance companies believe the proposed merger will lead to anti-competitive effects as illustrated by insurer's testimony in their ordinary course documents. Um, I would note that um, the FTC, ha, ha, that, that, that decision rather has been appealed um, and that arguments, uh, I think just occurred maybe uh, the week uh, before last. And um, in that case really seemed to center again on, in, on insurance testimony um, in particular, whether 
certain um, competitors to the emerging hospitals should or should not be included. So we can contrast that FTC victory um, through the prism of insurance testimony with an FTC loss, which was in uh, Jefferson Einstein. And in that case, back in March, um, the uh, FTC uh, challenge of uh, the, the proposed merger of Jefferson Health and Einstein um, outside of the, the Philadelphia area and lost that, that merger challenge, which is really one of the rare losses uh, that the FTC has encountered in its uh, hospital merger enforcement, which has uh, seen them have a, a quite the string of success over, I guess, the last 10 years plus. And in this instance, again, viewing it through the prism of insurance testimony, um, one of the uh, interesting things in the opinion was the emphasis on the fact that pair testimony must conform to, quote, commercial realities. And that in that instance, um, at least according to the judge in that case, that was not the case in the FTC um, loss with respect to its alleged markets. And, and it was their first loss, I guess, in, in nearly two decades. Um, the, the stay pending appeal was not granted uh, to the FTC. The parties were allowed to consummate that transaction. And as a result, um, the FTC dropped its appeal uh, that it had, uh, had going to the Third Circuit after losing its preliminary injunction motion in district court. Jenny? All right. Thanks, John. Yes, certainly a busy, busy year as, as usual uh, for the FTC in the litigated hospital merger world. So sticking with uh, the FTC, uh, we're down to our top two developments for 2021. And this next one is a you know, very broad development, but uh, we have new leadership at the FTC and uh, there have been several uh, new policy developments at the FTC uh, from the new leadership. So Alexis, why don't you tell us about those? Yeah, thanks, Jenny. To round out my cutesy and alliterative titles, this is my plethora of policy pronouncements from the FTC uh, and I'll, I'll spare uh, folks anymore. <laughs> after this one. Um, so we already touched on, uh, John did the repeal of the vertical merger guidelines, but beyond that, really since the inauguration in January, the democratic leadership at the FTC has implemented a whole host of other policy changes, both substantive and procedural, um, many of which were over the sense of the two Republican commissioners at the commission. Um, for example, in February, the FTC and, and DOJ uh, indefinitely suspended the early termination of the Hart-Scott-Rodino waiting period because um, their view there was an unprecedented volume of HSR filings that was straining agency resources. Um, so that means the suspension of early termination or ET means that even non-problematic mergers and acquisitions have to wait the full 30-day HSR waiting period before they can close. Then in March, the FTC created a multilateral working group on pharmaceutical mergers. That group is made up of state and international antitrust and competition enforcers and is intended to revamp and strengthen enforcers approach to pharma mergers um, all around the globe. So we're likely to see a tougher enforcement approach there. In August, the FTC's Bureau of Competition announced it would start issuing warning letters in transactions where the HSR waiting period had expired, um, but the agency had not completed its review of the transaction. So these form letters basically warned the parties to the transaction that the agency is reserving its right to challenge the transaction even after the HSR waiting period has expired and even after the parties have closed their transaction. So um, probably a little more bark than bite, but certainly um, if the agency were to challenge a transaction that had issued, uh, received one of these warning letters certainly would be big news, but um, certainly has people a little bit more guarded um, following HSR waiting period expirations. Um, and lastly, in October, I mean, this is really only scratching the surface of the changes, but um, this, this is one of the more significant ones. Um, in October, the FTC adopted a new prior approval policy for merger consent orders. And what the policy says is that when the FTC approves a merger under a consent order that requires divestiture, the acquirer in that deal or the merge firm in that deal must get the FTC's prior approval before they acquire any more businesses in that same market for the next 10 years. And prior approval is different from HSR where the 
agency would have to challenge your deal in order to block it. Here under prior approval, parties have to apply to get their deal approved to the FTC and the agency can simply say no and does not have the same statutory deadline to make a decision. So um, creates a lot of timing uncertainty uh, as well. The, the policy also says that this prior approval requirement will also be expanded to cover additional markets um, in certain instances. And the policy is also expanded to require divestiture buyers. So the parties who, uh, the company that buys any divestiture assets from the underlying merger, that divestiture buyer must get the FTC's prior approval before they sell the divested assets they acquired to anyone else in the next 10 years. So this policy has uh, pretty significant implications for parties that are active in M&A and have deals reviewed at the DOJ, unlike the DOJ where there's no such policy, at least none, none that's been implemented to date. So um, very significant for those involved in M&A. Jenny? Thanks, Alexis. And uh, again, this kind of watchword I think here is uncertainty. Uh, certainly been a lot of changes and this brings us uh, precisely to uh, our number one development of 2021, uh, which is the White House's executive order on competition, which seems to be where uh, a lot of these subsequent other developments are flowing from. So John, why don't you uh, give us an overview of that and uh, how that impacts uh, healthcare? Sure, honored to have the number one <laughs> development for 2021. And um, shouldn't be much of a surprise here. Number one is something that comes from the White House. Uh, as, as a practitioner, I know the three of us have been doing this for a while now. And I think we would all agree that typically we don't pay particularly close attention to political developments when it comes to antitrust. But um, this year has been an exemption, exception to that rule. And I think that's uh, uh, exemplified by the executive order that President Biden uh, signed uh, on July 9th. Um, to address competition across a number of industries. The executive order um, has 72 different initiatives and it stretches across, you know, uh, as I said, a number of economic sectors, but healthcare is one of the main um, industries of focus, uh, as you said, coming from the top. And so there were a number of um, initiatives that were uh, the particular to, to healthcare and pharmaceuticals. Um, and those include hospitals where uh, the executive order called on the Justice Department and the FTC to revise guidelines on hospital mergers, talking about how, you know, unchecked because of unchecked mergers, quote, the 10 largest healthcare systems control a quarter of the market, uh, according to the executive order. There were also parts of the order that touched on health insurance and, and directing HHS to standardize plan options on hearing aids, on prescription drugs, and on non-compete clauses, um, which uh, are relatively common with respect to professionals in the healthcare arena. And so, you know, this was something that was, again, um, signed into, uh, that was signed and executed by the president back in July. And we can see, as Jenny, I think you said, a number of things have flowed from that executive order with respect to things that were undertaken by both agencies as their leadership was um, confirmed and, and hit the ground running into the late summer and fall. And our view, I think, is also that things are really just getting started uh, in terms of a new uh, antitrust enforcement environment that is particularly important for the healthcare industry. And so there's a lot to look forward to as things continue to ramp up and we go forward into 2022. And you couldn't have just ended on a better segue uh, to talk about what we should be thinking about uh, and watching for in 2022. So we will use the rest of our time here to uh, hop around and give our thoughts around what the top 10 things that we should be watching for in 2022. Uh, start off back with you, John. Uh, why don't you give us some thoughts on whether you think there will be any DOJ activity in the insurance space in the coming year? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And I think you know, like the, the number 10 is what, what happens on the payer side, if anything, with, with respect to antitrust enforcement. If you notice a lot of what Jenny, you and Alexis and I have been discussing in terms of recent developments have been focused on providers and individuals. And so with new uh, leadership in place at the antitrust division, Jonathan Cantor has been confirmed as, as, as AAG um, and a, uh, uh, an agency that along with the FTC is focused on the healthcare industry you know, insurance companies or what we call payers 
those are for a number of convoluted jurisdictional reasons uh, subject to uh, enforcement by the Department of Justice. And I think while there's nothing concrete to point to in terms of transactions, rumored or otherwise, I think we all agree that um, one thing we're, we're looking forward to seeing um, uh, or anticipating seeing in 22 is whether healthcare, whether and to what extent uh, enforcement in the healthcare industry involves commercial payers and whether it's transactions or conduct or other arrangements that they're engaging in, um, we will uh, be, be uh, uh, eagerly anticipating those potential developments. Great, thanks. And so we've spent most of our time here talking today about the, uh, the White House and the FTC and DOJ and all the federal antitrust developments here, but one thing never to forget in healthcare space uh, are the states. Uh, Alexis, can you give us some uh, previews of what might be going on in the state antitrust legislative arena? Yeah, I think the listeners should definitely be uh, on the watch for what is happening at the state level in terms of antitrust legislation. And depending on what it does, this item could actually be higher up on our, our top 10 list. Um, I'm looking, for example, at antitrust legislation in New York, which um, in the last session passed the state Senate, but didn't pass the state assembly before the legislative session expired. Um, it, it's a bill that could come back um, this coming year and, and it would result in significant changes to state antitrust law. And while it's at least um, it seems to be intended to be directed at so-called big tech, uh, it is not limited in the terms that way. So it could sweep in healthcare and many other industries. So for example, the bill would create what's called an abusive dominance standard. It's a standard that you see in Europe, but it's unprecedented in the US. Um, so for example, the bill would presume that a firm is dominant if it either has a market share over 40%, which is generally lower than the monopolization um, standard uh, market share you need in the US. Um, second, it would um, make unlawful a firm's, quote, unilateral power to set prices, terms, conditions, or standards, um, whatever that means. And third, it would make unlawful the, quote, unilateral power to set wages. Again, um, unclear what that exactly means, but I think the ambiguity creates some risk. Um, the other thing that's significant about that bill is whereas federal antitrust law really only imposes criminal liability for price fixing and other hardcore collusion between two firms, the New York bill would actually criminalize what we call unilateral conduct like monopolization or things that a, a firm on its own does. Um, and so under that bill, uh, firms or companies would be subject to criminal fines up to $100 million and individuals would be um, liable for fines up to $1 million and four-year jail terms. Um, on the other side of the country, California is also looking at potentially revamping its antitrust law. So um, stay tuned because as they say, the uh, states now seem to be laboratories of antitrust reform. Jenny? Thanks, Alexis. So uh, I have the honor of delivering uh, development or thing to watch for number eight. Uh, and this is a little bit uh, over towards the pharmaceutical side of things. But the thing that we should be keeping an eye out for is there is an ongoing trial that should be uh, starting today, in fact, um, in the FTC and various state AGs. Uh, case against Viera Pharmaceuticals, which is the company uh, associated most notably with uh, its executive, Martin Shkreli, the infamous pharma bro. And just as a recap, uh, back in January of last year, the FTC and the New York State AG filed a complaint in New York federal court against uh, the company, uh, as well as two of its executives, Mr. Shkreli and uh, Kevin Milady as well as Vieira's parent company, um, Phoenixius. Uh, the complaint alleged that uh, the parties engaged in anti-competitive scheme in order to preserve a monopoly over the company's toxoplasmosis drug, uh, Daraprim. The case was later joined by several other state AGs from California, Illinois, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. So the FTCs and the state AGs brought their claims under sections one and two of the Sherman Act, also section five of the FTC Act, as well as the various state antitrust laws. And the crux of their complaint was that the company had acquired the drug and then prevented uh, their generic 
drug maker rivals from obtaining the samples that they needed uh, to develop their own generic versions of the drug. And also they reached deal with the sole US supplier of the drug's active pharmaceutical ingredient, which prevented uh, sales to their generic rivals. So recently, the most current development is that uh, the company and their parent company, as well as the former CEO, settled the case against them just before trial uh, a couple of weeks ago. This deal calls for the company to pay $10 million up front, plus up to $30 million over 10 years. It also bans uh, Mr. Milady from most roles in the pharmaceutical industry, including uh, restrictions on his ability to own uh, ownership interests in companies in the in the industry uh, for seven years. So this case is really a notable example of one of the cases that's been impacted by the Supreme Court's decision in AMG Capital Management came out earlier in the year and curtailed the FTC's ability to seek restitution, disgorgement, and other equitable monetary relief under Section 13B of the FTC Act. Uh, and Section 13B of the FTC Act was a common vehicle for the agency to um, bring cases in federal court and seek monetary relief, uh, in particular in conduct cases often involving pharmaceutical uh, company conduct behavior. So with the Supreme Court decision uh, negating the FTC's ability to get that relief, uh, this case is notable here in particular because the state antitrust laws uh, in which the state AGs brought their cases still uh, provided for equitable monetary relief and therefore the settlement could still be supported with um, dollar um, payments. So with this settlement of the company and uh, his co-defendant, co-executive, this leaves uh, Mr. Shkreli to face his trial alone and as most of you probably know he is still in prison for securities fraud from several years ago, and he will go to a trial with a bench trial starting today, December 14th. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that shakes out uh, going forward. And sticking with the FTC, uh, our number seven thing to watch for in 2022 is uh, the potential confirmation of Alberto Bedoya as the fifth FTC commissioner. Alexis, do you want to give us some preview on that? Yeah, thanks, Jenny. Um, so this fall, the president nominated Bedoya to serve as the third Democrat on the commission. Uh, Bedoya is a Georgetown law professor, and he's the director of their Center on Privacy and Technology. Um, not surprisingly, his work focuses on privacy issues, uh, particularly how technology affects people of color, immigrants, and workers. So he doesn't really have any significant antitrust experience, as far as I could tell. Um, so his expertise really aligns with the FTC's consumer protection mission. Um, so he's likely to bring a pretty strong privacy lens to the commission's work. Um, and as privacy becomes potentially a element of antitrust analysis in cases, um, there's likely to be a melding of, of his work and the commission's competition work. Um, but I think the real import is when, if and when he gets um, um, confirmed and sworn in, he would, I expect, would be a pretty reliable third vote that will help uh, the majority kind of pick up where they left off when they had three Democrats um, earlier in the year. Uh, on, on various policy changes and being able to get through and, you know, three, two votes again, as they were earlier in the year. Um, Bedoya did get a split 14-14 vote in the Senate Commerce Committee a couple of weeks ago, um, but I understand that there are procedural mechanisms for um, the Democrats in the Senate to move forward with his nomination if they stay united in their votes. And, you know, the grapevine is apparently predicting that he will be confirmed probably by January. So uh, keep watch for, for that. Jenny? All right, Alexis. So I think that we're going to uh, stick with you uh, for item to watch number six. And you told us just a few minutes ago about the developments on the legislative front in the states. Can you give us a heads up on what might be coming uh, from the Congress? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so 
there are a bunch of bills, I think around six that made it out of um, the House Judiciary Committee this past summer, um, several which had Republican support. Um, I think those have seemed to slow down. Uh, and then on the Senate side, you had a number of antitrust bills introduced as well, including Senator Klobuchar's um, Competition and Antitrust Law Enforcement Reform Act, or CALERA. And that bill would make really sweeping changes to antitrust law and to toughen enforcement, both on the merger side and on the conduct side. Um, and um, the provisions there wouldn't be limited just to the tech industry, which a lot of these bills are um, at least focused on anyway. Um, you know, the, the November elections aren't that far away and I'm seeing early predictions that control of the House and Senate could flip to the Republicans. So there's really only um, a little time left for Democrats to try to pass these bills. And there's obviously a lot of issues that are occupying uh, Congress's time, whether it's COVID, you know, keeping the government running, et cetera. And with most bills in the Senate needing 60 votes, I, I'm a little less, um, I'm more skeptical that we'll see anything at the federal level and maybe a little more um, um, optimistic or, or think the state legislation that I mentioned earlier probably has better chances, but you know, certainly if federal legislation passes, it could have significant implications for interest enforcement. Jenny. Thanks, Alexis. Yes, uh, certainly always an interesting uh, guessing game, parlor game for, for DC antitrust uh, lawyers to speculate on, on where things may be headed uh, on the congressional front. But moving to our number five development, uh, is the FTC possibly taking some things into their own hands uh, in response to uh, the congressional lack of uh, success at passing legislation and the FTC is engaging in rulemaking on various issues, including uh, exclusive contracts and non-competes. So John, let us know what, uh, yeah, what's been going on. Now. Certainly something to look forward to. I mean, back in the, the genesis of this is back in 2020, um, a number of interest groups, including Open Markets Institute, um, filed a, a, or were encouraging the FTC to ban exclusionary contracting, certain types of it. In fact, Open Markets Institute filed a petition, I think in July of that year, imploring the FTC to take action. And then sort of nothing happened until relatively recently when the FTC started soliciting comments on rulemaking um, with respect to exclusive dealing or exclusionary um, contracting. And the reason why this is important for healthcare and I trust is that in the industry, and in, in, in I think our collective experience, we would agree that um, exclusive contracting, particularly on the provider side, um, is certainly common in certain practices in order to you know, keep um, track of quality metrics and the like. And so should the FTC take action um, in this arena, not just through enforcement action, but through rulemaking, which would be pretty extraordinary and hasn't happened for some time, it's something that could potentially have a pretty serious impact on the industry at large. And so we're focused to see, A, what the FTC does, if anything, with respect to rulemaking. Um, and having looked through some of the comments, I think there are arguments on uh, various sides as to whether the FTC even has the authority. But then B, if the FTC does do um, some rulemaking, whether it's with respect to exclusive contracting or other practices, what the challenges, um, and probably wouldn't happen just in 2022, but down the road, what challenges um, that would precipitate and then um, whether uh, and under what circumstances the FTC's authority to engage in rulemaking in certain ways would be um, upheld by a court. Thanks, John. So sticking uh, with uh, the agencies, we've you know, talked a lot about the developments at the leadership level of the agencies and the commentary that came out of the White House. What do you think, Alexis, uh, are the likelihood of the agencies taking enforcement action on the basis of some newer theories that have been espoused by current agency leadership or uh, sort of their compatriots that are in the White House? Yeah, it certainly seems the leadership is very much thinking about and talking about broadening the lens that gets brought to antitrust investigations to look at a wider range of, of issues and potential theories of harm, everything from the role of private equity and transactions and competition to labor market harms to um, the effect of transactions on not just consumers, but competitors and workers and a whole range of issues. And 
One theory that I'll be watching for in 2022 and that appears to be getting closer attention already um, is what we call cross-market merger theory. You know, in a nutshell, there's economic literature out there that says cross-market mergers between, say, a healthcare provider in different markets but adjacent markets that those transactions are associated with higher price increases compared to mergers involving providers in non-adjacent markets, um, but wouldn't be um, in the same market under a traditional antitrust, you know, section seven of the Clayton Act approach, at least as the FTC has been litigating these hospital merger cases recently. I think there's some dispute um, about whether you can maintain that cross-market um, theory of harm under Section 7 of the Clayton Act and whether the FTC will actually bring uh, a case on that theory, which would be unprecedented. Uh, but you know, we hear that that theory is getting some play in some investigations. There seems to be a protracted review right now ongoing about the Spectrum Beaumont merger, which, you know, by my Quick look doesn't seem like there's any real overlap um, there. That that likely suggests that cross market theory may be getting a, a pretty close look in connection with that deal. So um, keep watch on that case because that might be the canary in the coal mine for um, the agency looking and bringing uh, cross market merger theory to, to bear. Okay. Awesome. We're coming in our home stretch here. So John, you told us earlier about the FTC's withdrawal of the vertical merger guidelines. What do you see going forward in terms of the agency's uh, pronouncements on uh, vertical merger guidelines or even horizontal merger guidelines in the coming year? Yeah, so in response to the executive order, Jenny, which I, I uh, talked about as our number one um, development in 2021, the DOJ, uh, FTC both announced that the agencies will review um, the jointly issued horizontal merger guidelines last updated in 2010. And of course, um, the vertical merger guidelines, which I indicated uh, had the, uh, or talked about, I discussed that the FTC had unilaterally withdrawn earlier this year. And so, you know, there's already a lot on the plate, uh, plates of, of both agencies that um, enforce the federal antitrust laws, uh, the federal agencies. And so we will see what happens in this space, um, whether we get updated and revised guidelines either uh, for horizontal transactions or for vertical transactions. Now coming back for our top two, uh, also circling back to one of the other cases that we talked about as one of our key developments from 2021. Alexis, what do you see coming forward in the coming year in the Illumina Grail uh, case? Yeah, this will this will be a big one. As I as I mentioned earlier, this is uh, the FTC's first you know fully litigated vertical merger in, in decades. It's the first fully litigated vertical merger case since the DOJ's um, challenge to the AT and T Time Warner vertical merger, which they lost um, in in 2018 and, and then was sustained on appeal. Um, so you know this is the next big shoot a drop in vertical mergers. It's going to be a significant decision. Um, that said, whichever party loses the case is almost surely likely to appeal that decision uh, of the ALJ to um, the next level, which uh, in the case of administrative litigation means the FTC, uh, the full commission itself, which voted out the complaint. So from there, it could even go up to a, a circuit court. So um, it, it's possible uh, we could see a decision at least from the commission by next year, but it's also possible given the action in Europe on the transaction, uh, we may have a decision that could um, really either put an end to that deal or, or maybe mean the FTC's decision is all that more important. Either way, I think we really have to stay tuned because this has um, a lot of import for the FTC's ability and interest in pursuing vertical mergers and will have implications for um, all the vertical integration that we're seeing across the healthcare sector. So uh, very much a case to watch. Yes, absolutely. Lots of moving parts there. So we will honor John with our uh, number one thing to watch for in 2022 and this being AHLA and us being, uh, you know, M&A uh, hospital merger nerds, why don't you forecast what we might see from the third circuit in the Hackensack Englewood appeal? Well, who knows? I'm not going to hazard a guess, but um, as I mentioned earlier, I think oral arguments were just a week before last, and it really seemed to be that the central issue 
uh, at the Third Circuit um, as to whether to uphold the lower court's decision to enjoin the transaction between Hackensack and Englewood is whether um, hospitals outside, other hospitals um, other than the merging parties outside of Bergen County should be included in the market and therefore constrain prices with the FGC appearing to rely very heavily on payer testimony and the parties arguing that the econometric modeling that they had done supports a wider uh, geographic market, and therefore uh, more competition and thus making the transaction uh, not illegal under Section 7 of the Clayton Act. So that was a mouthful, but uh, we will see. Um, you know, it's, it's coming out of the Third Circuit, which is a very active court, as, as the three of us and many of our listeners know in the antitrust arena. And so it, it clearly, uh, at least in our collective view, is the number one thing we're looking forward to most, uh, not generally, but when it comes to healthcare antitrust enforcement in the United States. And so we will see uh, when that opinion comes out. I'm sure there'll be lots of great content out there from HLA and others uh, that analyze uh, that decision. And we'll see what impact it has on uh, broader trends in uh, uh, hospital merger enforcement going forward. Awesome. John, Alexis, this was so much fun. Thank you for uh, inviting me to your party. Uh, really uh, had a uh, yeah, great time listening to you and getting your thoughts on all of these amazing developments over the course of the last year. When you sit down and think about it, uh, it's really mind boggling how to pick 10. Uh, so uh, thank you again for your expertise and uh, your good humor and sharing all of this information with us and our AHLA listeners. I hope everyone has a wonderful 2022. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.